Hi, this is Stacy Keach, and you're listening to TV Confidential. Lydia, oh Lydia, say, have you met Lydia? Lydia the tattooed lady. She has eyes that folks adore so, and a torso even more so. Ed Robertson welcoming you to TV Confidential. Radio talk show about television. Joan Van Ark will join us in our second hour. Joan Van Ark, the actress known around the world as Valley Ewing on Knott's Landing. Our friends at the Hollywood Museum recently celebrated the 40th anniversary of Knott's Landing with a new lobby exhibit. We'll ask Joan about that. We'll also talk about Joan's career as a voice artist, which includes the voice of Spider-Woman. Plus, we'll talk about the advice that James Garner once gave her very early in her career. Joan Van Ark will join us in our second hour. We'll be able to stay tuned for that. In the meantime, we'll open up our first hour by playing part two of our conversation we began last week with author and screenwriter Steve Stolier. Steve Stolier is the author of Raised Eyebrows, My Years Inside Groucho's House, the story of Steve's three years as Groucho's personal secretary and archivist where he worked inside Groucho's house and got to know him as a person while still idolizing him as the world's biggest Groucho Marx fan, uh, raised... And I, I, and Zeppo and I dated the same girl. That's right. And Zeppo and I, and, and you, you and Zeppo dated the same girl. If, uh, if, if you don't know that story, you have to pick up a copy of Raised <laughs> Eyebrows, My Years Inside Groucho's House, which is available in softcover, hardcover, audiobook, an ebook through our friends at Bear Manor Media, Steve's website, stevestolier.com. Uh, one of the things we talked about uh, is, is how Groucho was, uh, for you, Groucho was a bridge from the 19th century to the 20th century because he was born in 1890 and he remembered his first. 1890. 1890 and his first, uh, um, he, he remembered as far back as the Spanish American War. In a way, you're a bridge because you're you're the keeper of things, Groucho. You're you're sort of a bridge between the 19th century to today, the 21st century, because so much time has passed. Well, it's interesting because when I was working for him, his peers uh, found it kind of gratifying that this this kid in blue jeans and tennis shoes knew all about the stuff that they did and the people that, you know, the Algonquin Round Table and Tin Pan Alley and all that. And it was gratifying to them that this young whippersnapper, maybe the younger generation wasn't all pot-smoking hippies and there's some hope for them. Well, now I'm 65, last time I checked, (laughs) and uh, now I hear... You know, when I start to think people don't care about the Marx Brothers anymore, and I'll mention Groucho to someone in their 30s, and they'll look at me blankly, and I'll think, oh, well. Then someone else will say, oh, no, I, I, I ran this for my students, or my granddaughter, six years old, was laughing at Harpo and Monkey Business, or something like that. And then I think I've become one of those guys who, <laughs> who says... You know, it's it's very gratifying to hear that kids today can appreciate what we did all those years ago. So, yeah, the torch gets passed to a new generation, and hopefully they won't burn, burn down the world. <laughs> Let me, uh, I want to ask you this. Groucho died in 77. The battle over his estate, you had there are several uh, things that uh, you had to play out over the ensuing decade. You first 
published this book in 96. When, I mean, I, I, I can understand, okay, you had to wait for things to play out before you could sit down and write, but when did you decide, okay, I need to tell this story now? Well, over the years, I mean, even contemporaneously, back when it was happening, I would get together with friends for lunch and tell them about the latest funny thing or interesting thing or shocking thing that happened. And then over the years, people would ask me specific questions, and I would contour my reminiscences to whatever they were asking about. And I think it was just that my back was against the wall. I, my, I was getting fewer television writing assignments. I'd done things like Murder, She Wrote, and Simon and & Simon, and the new KRP in Cincinnati, and some other stuff. But I had time on my hands, and people kept saying, you really should write about it. And I thought, well, I can't write a book because it's only on the last three years of his life. I'm such a footnote to this lengthy lifetime, I couldn't possibly fill a book. But maybe if I write some of the highlights up from my first-person perch, uh, maybe it would make for an article for Esquire or Vanity Fair or something. So I sat down to try to recreate the chronology of events from being a fan to seeing him at the Dorothy Chandler in his one-man show in 72 and being firmly convinced that that was as close as I would ever get to my hero and then going through the Animal Crackers campaign and getting the job. And I was on, like, page nine and hadn't met him yet and thought, well, it can be longer than an article. Mm -hmm. And then I worried, which is one of the things I do best, I worried that it would be too long for an article and too short for a book, and that I'd just have this thing, this novella or something. But I just patiently went through it all. I asked friends who I had sent letters to, if they saved them, please send them back to me or copy them, because those had firsthand at the time, stories that I might have forgotten about. And gradually, you know, like an archaeological dig, I pieced together this this years-long thing and ended up with a book. And then it became difficult finding an agent and then a publisher, which was frustrating. I had a cover letter that said, this is not a biography of Groucho Marx. This is the story of a fan meeting his hero, and I would get rejection slips that said, we're not interested in any Groucho Marx biographies at this time. And I would want to throttle them and say, did you even read past the first yep. line of the cover mm -hmm. letter? Never mm -hmm. mind the manuscript. So determination, and eventually found a publisher, and people seemed to like it. And I had known Dick Cavett for years and written for him and were friends, and uh, I'd become a pen pal of Woody Allen's, and he was very supportive of it. He actually sent me a letter that said, I wish you would have asked me to help you get it published, because it's one of the most, uh, one of the best books about a show business icon I ever read, and I thought it never even occurred to me to ask him, the, the chutzpah of thinking of asking Woody to be my agent on my behalf or something. So it's been a very gratifying ride. And then, as I say, I did the expanded version in 2012 that had uh, sort of what happened to a lot of the people in the book, 
or people in the book and their responses to reading how I wrote about them. Yeah, we'll, we'll just say one of the uh, characters you write about in the book threatened to sue you. We'll just leave it at that. you got to pick up a copy of right. Raised Eyebrows to find out uh, uh, who we're Other talking one committed suicide, although not because of my... <laughs> and there was going back into Groucho's house years later after it had been completely reworked. It was it was going to be offered for sale, and someone said, let's go as looky-loos. And I went, and it was weird because it was like I was haunting a house I used to live in. Yeah. It was very surreal. So I write about that and uh, other stuff in the new version. Yeah, you also... We talked a little bit about... Uh, how Groucho's house was was egalitarian in every sense of the word, uh, and that, that kind of speaks to the way to the people who made up his staff, uh, the people who worked for him. I mean, they came from different backgrounds, and and it was a big melting pot. And each of those people you bring to life as characters, and oh, thank you. And in that's 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 one of the joys I found in reading Raised Eyebrows, and I know our listeners, if they haven't read the book. We'll, we'll have that same experience. Raised eyebrows, my years inside Groucho's hearse, uh, house of, uh, by not Steve. Groucho's hearse. There was no yeah, one, not, not no, enough room inside no, Groucho's hearse. No, no, no. Not Groucho's hearse. Groucho's house, which uh, by our guest Steve Stoyer, available. Soft cover, hard cover, ebook, and now audio book through BearMannerMedia.com. BearMannerMedia.com. Now, you mentioned Cavett. In, in a way, your relationship with Cavett is sort of a microcosm of the evolution of the Steve we get to know in Raised Eyebrows because you went from a reader of, of his 1974 memoir, Cavett, to someone who worked for him and became a colleague. Yeah, it's, it's very strange because now there are a couple of books that Cavett wrote since, since the 74 book in which he talked about me. And it's a very kind of through-the-looking-glass thing, where when Cavett came out in 74, it was by Cavett, and then it had dust jacket blurbs from Groucho and Woody Allen. And then I wrote a book about Groucho that had dust jacket blurbs by Cavett (laughs) and Woody Allen. And then Cavett wrote a book that plugged (laughs) the book that I wrote about (laughs) Groucho. It's very strange and gratifying. But yes, I, uh, you know, I started corresponding with Cavett when I was working for Groucho, and then when Groucho died, I thought, well, I guess that's it. The the coach turns back into a pumpkin. Why would someone like Dick Cavett, this Yale-educated New York intellectual, want to stay in touch with me now that I'm no longer a pipeline into all the intrigue at Groucho's house? And he called me from New York. The week Groucho died, and he said, listen, I hope just because Groucho's gone, we're not going to lose touch. And by the way, I hope you don't mind, but I've shown some of your letters to Woody, and he says they're very well written. And I had to empty the urine out of my <laughs> Like, wow, you're calling me to say, hey, don't let's lose touch. Yeah. And in fact, he, I will always credit him with being the one I was... After Groucho died, I became a production secretary at Universal back when they were doing, you know, Kojak mm-hmm. and Palumbo and Rockford Files uh-huh. and all those shows. And he's the one that saw my potential and hired me to write for him at HBO. And I moved to New York and had a remarkable adventure in Manhattan for about two and a half years 
before work dried up there and I got an offer to return reluctantly to L.A. But, yeah, he's been a sort of big brother and not in the Orwellian yeah. sense. And, um, yeah, it's all because of Groucho. It's all because of Groucho, uh, and you can read about Steve's story and more in Raised Eyebrows, My Years Inside Groucho's House, uh, available in paperback, hardcover, ebook, audiobook through Bear Manor Media. You mentioned that you met Lauren Bacall at the time she did her Rockford. Did you get a chance to talk to her? Do you have any memories of that? <laughs> yes. Funny you mention it. It wasn't that I wasn't impressed by James Garner. But when they're people that have a weekly show and you see them all the time, it isn't the same as when there's some special someone that's guest starring. Like what? I got to meet Fred Astaire on the set of Battlestar Galactica mm-hmm. of all of the unlikely pet places because his grandchild had said, Grandpa, that's my favorite show. Will you go on it? So I met him on the set of Galactica. So I would hear about what stars are guest starring on series. And Lauren Bacall was guest-starring on what became a two-part Rockford file. Mm-hmm. She may have won an Emmy for that. I'm not sure. She either anyway. won or was nominated. It was, one of the very, it was one of the last Rockfords they did. Before. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so I got an, an original portrait of her from the mid-'40s, from Warner Brothers period. And I went to the set, and she was talking to Garner, and I waited politely for a break in the conversation, and then I went up to her and, you know, complimented how much I enjoyed her films and so on, and uh, asked her to sign it, and she looked at the picture and she said, oh my, this was Warner Brothers, (laughs) and I I said, I have a question for you. I said, One of my favorite films of yours is Key Largo. And there's that wonderful scene where Edward G. Robinson's character is whispering something to you and you spit in his face. I said, I can imagine the sort of thing that his character would be saying, but could I ask you what Robinson, the actor, was actually whispering? And she looked me in the eye and she said, well, you can ask. (laughs) I thought, okay, well, thank you so much. And I took my picture and thanked her and left. Um, Apparently, I got off easy. Uh, but apparently she could be one tough broad with a lot of people. So I took that hint. I mean, when she just stares at you saying, well, yes. you can act like it's not going to get you anywhere. Yeah. And I, actually, I thought that was a pretty good question. It, it, it was a good question. And as Steve mentioned early in our conversation, Steve is an old soul. I mean, at least when, when Steve was in his 20s, he was an old soul in that he was more interested in old Hollywood than contemporary Hollywood, which which explains why he would be more excited to, to learn that Lauren Bacall was doing an episode of Rockford Files that week than, than, than some of the other stars on the lot. Right. And I never tired of, uh, you know, there were people who worked there in the steno pool and as secretaries, and to them it was just you punch in and you punch out and that's it. And I found the place just fascinating. I mean, on my lunch hour, I would walk all over the place and I just wanted to go exploring and it's like wow there's the Frankenstein streets and there's the Phantom of the Opera stage that they're still using for shooting things and 
I just sort of, I was so curious, I just soaked up that experience too, even though it wasn't a very glamorous job typing TV scripts from 11 to 8 every day. But I would think, you know, go, going back to the three years you spent with Groucho, I would uh-huh. think the reason why you stayed with him to the end was because he knew you appreciated not only him, but you appreciated the entire era of you know that that he embodied and uh you know well, there's that there's caring about him and mm-hmm. for him yeah i mean towards the end as i detail in the book you became his protector i yeah i was actually in charge of the household on weekends there were these two warring factions that wanted control of groucho one was basically his son arthur and the other was basically aaron fleming and each of them had allies and adversaries and I ended up being like this traffic cop, making sure visitors from this camp weren't coming while there were visitors from this camp. And it was very strange to realize that I had just been this kid who wanted to shake my hero's hand and maybe get his autograph. And while he's essentially dying down the hall, I'm helping to protect and regulate the people who are coming in and out of the house. But the, you know, the other part is admittedly selfish. I just didn't want to miss any of what was going on. Mm-hmm. I was always the last person to leave parties at his place because I didn't want to miss anything. And if it meant that I helped clear the dishes, I oh, fine, you know, I just don't want to miss Jack Lemon playing the piano or someone engaging them in conversation about something. So I just made up my mind early on that I would put up with Aaron Fleming's volatility and, you know, the bittersweet aspects of, and challenging aspects of working there. And the trade-off would be until someone says stop working. Yeah. I'm. Yeah. Or hand over your key. Yeah. Or hand over your key. Neither of which happened. You know, because no. uh, yeah. And 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 the fact that uh, Nat Perrin, who ended up being the, the temporary conservator during the last, uh, th- what turned out to be the last three months of Groucho's life. We'll pick up that story on the other side of the break when we continue our conversation with Steve Stoyer here on TV Confidential. Are you from California, Illinois, New York, Georgia, or any of the other 39 states that charge state income tax? Does your state claim you owe them any amount of back taxes? Or have you not filed in years? Is your heart pounding because you know they're wrong or you just don't have the money? Don't fight the state income tax board alone. The tax doctor is here to help you. The state is much more aggressive than the IRS in collecting taxes. They have the power to take your home, your car, your driver's and business licenses, even garnish your wages, freeze your bank accounts, and go after your spouse. Solve all your income tax problems permanently and keep more of your hard-earned money. Make this 100% guaranteed risk-free call right now. 800-649-0142. 800-649-0142. That's 800-649-0142. Story Salon is Los Angeles' longest-running storytelling venue. We have live shows every Wednesday in Studio City, as well as solo shows, podcasts, CDs, and several books. Los Angeles Daily News calls Story Salon gemstones of narrative, something new, funny, astonishing. Sunset Magazine says, tales tall, tragic, and tantalizing. 
All of this makes Story Salon one of the most eclectic entertainment experiences available. You can learn more about us by going to our Facebook page or by visiting our website at www.storysalon.com. Accredited by Guinness World Records, welcome to Archival Television Audio, Incorporated. A peerless TV soundtrack archive, preserving the audio from television's first three decades, the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, the golden and silver age of television. For more information, go to atvaudio.com. Ed Robertson, author friend Donna Allen Figueroa, who I understand has a new book out. Yes, it's entitled Fall Again Beginnings. It's the first part of a four-part contemporary romantic series a set against the background of working actors. Something that you know a, little, a thing or two well, about. Well, you write what you know, and I have been working in the business for several years. It is not necessarily autobiographical, but it's based on... Sure, many of the experiences that the actors in my book have. Many have happened to me. Many have happened to friends of mine. It's not if you're looking for... Valley of the Dolls, it's not, it's grounded in reality. It is grounded in reality, and it's the first in a series. Yes. Called the Fall Again series. Fall Again. Which is available as a paperback as well as an ebook and in Kindle at fallagainseries.com. Be part of our conversation. If you like what you hear, have thoughts on this week's program, or have an idea for a future edition of TV Confidential, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at talk at tvconfidential.net, talk at tvconfidential.net. You can also message us at facebook.com forward slash tvconfidential, x.com forward slash tvconfidential, or at tvconfidential on Instagram. And if you're listening to us on the TV Confidential podcast, please be sure to hit the subscribe button. This portion of TV Confidential is brought to us by our friends at Front Porch Realty, the community of realtors in the Northern Bay Area of California that is committed to finding the solution that is best for their clients. Whether you're a first-time home buyer or looking to sell or lease your property in Northern California, call Karen Strain at 415-886-7411 or visit frontporchrealtygroup.com for more information on how they can help you.